for the Stock Car Racing Time Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Naiman. Today, you're listening to Episode 31, the 1997 running of the Goodies Headache Powder 500, or as most fans affectionately like to call it, the Bristol Night Race. So the last couple weeks on the podcast, as we've been reviewing the races, we've been discussing some of the driver changes that were occurring for the upcoming 1998 season. For this podcast, we're going to skip over that because this Bristol Night Race was an outstanding race with close quarter racing, crashes, surprising drivers having great runs, and a really, really great finish too as well. So we'll discuss those, some of those driver changes in some upcoming podcasts, but this is going to be a little bit longer than the usual podcast because there were just so many exciting moments in this race. And there was a lot of excitement to be back on a short track. The last short track race was back in April in Martinsville, and there had been 13 races run that were not short track races with the configuration of the 1997 NASCAR wins the cup schedule. And honestly, the last couple of races were at tracks that don't always provide the closest quarter racing. Tracks like Pocono, Indianapolis, Watkins Glen, and Michigan, they can have their moments, but the field tends to get pretty spread out. So it was very exciting to get back on a short track and a race that, as we had talked about in previous podcasts, had really been rising up the level of excitement and the level of prestige too as well. So when we look at the favorites for the Bristol Night Race, Rusty Wallace has to be at the top of the list. He was the defending champion of this race, winning in 1996, and he had an outstanding record at Bristol. And although he'd had a difficult season, he had done very, very well on the short tracks this season. He had won at Richmond back in early March. He had run well at Bristol, looked like he was on his way to victory, until Jeff Gordon pulled off the bump and run on the last lap in turn three, and he had had a solid day at Martinsville too. Speaking of Jeff Gordon, you had to consider Gordon a serious contender for victory too. Gordon had won three straight day races, and he had finished second to Rusty Wallace in the 1996 night race. He had an excellent record on the short tracks this season. He'd actually won back-to-back short track races with that exciting last lap pass of Rusty Wallace at Bristol back in April, and he followed up with a dominating performance winning at Martinsville despite spinning, and the, after about two-thirds of the race had been completed, he came back to still win the race with a spin and win. And his other finish was a fourth-place run at Richmond. Another driver who wasn't thought as a great short track driver, but really had been improving his performance of late on the short tracks was Dale Jarrett. Previous seasons, most people kind of marked Jarrett as not a great driver in the short tracks. But 1997 was very different. He was looked to be the winner at Richmond until a late race caution and a poor restart gave the win to Rusty Wallace. He'd had a nice day at Bristol scoring a top five finish and struggled a little bit at Martinsville. But Jarrett was moving in the right direction in the short tracks. And he was tired of hearing that he had not had a NASCAR Winston Cup win on the short tracks and was ready to go to victory lane. You also couldn't count out Mark Martin. He turned his fortunes around in the 1997 season with two runs from the back pits on short tracks at Bristol and Martinsville. Since that point in time, Martin had only missed the top 10 in one race when he was crashed on the last lap of the Pepsi 400 at Daytona. Martin had a victory in the 90s at Bristol, and a driver in great physical condition such as Mark Martin, especially when a lot of drivers didn't emphasize being physically fit, could be a big advantage to Martin, especially on those long green flag runs if it occurred at Bristol, a track where you really have to manhandle the race car too. You couldn't count out Terry Labonte. He was the winner of the 1995 Bristol night races. He crashed across the start finish line with help from Dale Earnhardt. And he had run well on the short tracks and was a close and had a good finish at Bristol in the top five earlier in the season as well. If you were looking for a couple underdog stories to look at, one would be Steve Grissom. 
he was running in the top 10 at Bristol before he was involved in a crash, not of his own doing, when Jeff Bodine looked to get revenge on Jimmy Spencer for an earlier incident back in the spring race at Bristol. Ken Trader ran sixth at Dover, and Dover's a concrete track much like Bristol, so you would expect that that would carry over, and Ken Trader typically runs the short tracks too as well. Another dark horse driver to look at has to be Dick Trickle. Trickle had his best finish of the season, 11th at Bristol, and he had a history of some pretty good finishes at Bristol, and of course he'd won thousands of short track races in the Midwest in his career before he decided to come NASCAR Winston Cup racing in his late 40s to early 50s. Qualifying for the 1997 Goodies Headache Powder 500 would be a late afternoon qualifying session. And I don't know if we would describe this as a surprise poll winner or not, but Kenny Wallace, who had already won a poll earlier in the season at Martinsville, won his second poll of the season and the second of his career. And Kenny Wallace had now won back-to-back short track polls. Because remember, the 1997 Winston Cup schedule, the Richmond race was the third race of the NASCAR Winston Cup season. And then after that, we had Bristol and Martinsville go back-to-back after the inaugural Texas race. And then we had a long break with no short track races until the late August race in Bristol. And then a couple of weeks later, after the Southern 500, the following weekend, we would have the Richmond night race run in early September. And then in late September, we would run the race at Martinsville. And Kenny Wallace's best finish on the 1997 NASCAR Winston Cup season was when he won the pole at Martinsville. He finished sixth, although he failed to lead a lap. Jeff Gordon was on the outside pole. Dale Jarrett, trying to pick up his first ever NASCAR Winston Cup short track win, qualified third. Dick Trickle qualified fourth. This tied his best start of the season. He started fourth at Atlanta. Mark Martin was the fifth fastest qualifier. Good qualifying for Ken Schrader in sixth. Seventh fastest qualifier, Morgan McClure, their hometown racetrack, was Sterling Marlin. The eighth fastest qualifier was David Green, best qualifying rookie. Great qualifying effort for Derek Copen, ninth. Ward Burton qualified 10th, and he had scored a top 10 in last year's Bristol Night Race. Wally Dollenbach was 11th fastest. Ted Musgrave was 12th fastest. Ted Musgrave's teammate, Jeff Burton, qualified 13th fastest. Ricky Craven was the 14th fastest qualifier, and Jeff Bodine rounded out the top 15. Other notables included Rusty Wallace qualifying 16th. He was the defending winner of the Bristol Night Race. Terry Labonte, the 1995 winner of the Bristol Night Race, qualified 19th. Darrell Waltrip qualified 23rd and would be on the backstretch. Ernie Irvin, who had picked up his first NASCAR Winston Cup victory at Bristol, qualified 32nd. Dale Earnhardt, who also picked up his first career NASCAR Winston Cup win at Bristol, qualified 34th. Bill Elliott was the 36th fastest driver. Bobby Labonte qualified 38th. And Ricky Rudd qualified 39th. So a lot of guys in the top 10 in points way out back and going to have to come from the backstretch pits, which, of course, we know is always extremely challenging when the caution comes out, especially to track like Bristol, where there's a lot of cautions. As for the drivers who did not make the field, Robbie Gordon failed to qualify for their first race this season, number 40 car. Now, this should be noted that there were quite a few races that Robbie Gordon didn't run due to a variety of reasons. Remember, he had qualified to run the Winston 500 at Talladega, but the race was rained out in the following week and the series went to Sears Point and then they ran the Winston 500 on the Sunday before Mother's Day. But Robbie Gordon was attempting to qualify at Indianapolis and they decided to put Joe Nemechek in the car and Robbie Gordon concentrated on qualifying for the Indianapolis 500. He then unfortunately suffered those 
Burns at the Indy 500 and had to miss four races. He tried to practice some at Fontana, but ultimately they decided to put Greg Sachs in the car. And really, it had been an extremely difficult season for Robbie Gordon. Really a pretty disastrous season, honestly. And I think if you even ask Robbie Gordon and Felix Sabatis, they would say the same thing. Even before Robbie Gordon skipped the Talladega race and then had the burns suffered in Indianapolis, his first nine races of the season, he had six finishes of 33rd or worse. And really the only highlight of the season was the pole at the first Atlanta race where he finished in the top 15. He was 37th in points after those first nine races. So despite him missing races, that really wasn't the reason that he was so far down in the points. When they look back on this season for Robbie Gordon, he struggled at the tracks that you would expect him to struggle at. He really had difficulty at the short tracks. The very technical tracks like Rockingham and Darlington were very tough on him. You know, he had good experience on road courses and he showed some pretty good speed at tracks like Charlotte and Atlanta, which there was a little more room to roam and a little less uh, margin for error as well. So it had pretty much been announced at this point that Robbie Gordon was not going to be back in the 40 car. That was almost certainly Sterling Marlin was going to be in that car. So it just had been a tough season for Robbie Gordon, not the results that he and Felix Sabatis had hoped for. And Robbie Gordon had really talked a lot about his disappointment that Felix Sabatis added all these extra teams. He felt that he wanted to be the main guy and they have one team. And then they brought Joe Nemechek in to be a full-time driver. And Wally Dollenbach was supposed to be part-time, but they really ended up running a lot more races. Tough qualifying effort for Dave Marcus. This was his seventh did not qualify of the season. And he now had four consecutive did not qualifies. Prior to the Brickyard 400, Dave had made 15 of the first 18 races, but he had really started to struggle in qualifying and things had just not been going well for Dave. A guy that you felt bad for really laid his blood and guts into the team. So extremely underfunded, independent driver, just trying to scratch and crawl the best he can. And, you know, when you look back at Dave's history over kind of the past four seasons, he'd missed anywhere from three to eight races in those four seasons. And this was looking like a really difficult year, already missed seven races after getting off to a decent start in terms of qualifying for races. The tough season continued for the number 77 team. Morgan Shepard now had his fourth DNF with the number 77 Jasper Engines team. He had only made five of nine races since joining this team since Bobby Hillen had been released. And of course, Bobby Hillen had missed three of the first 13 races. So all told, this 77 team now had seven did not qualifies. And really, in terms of qualifying and really the entire season, the only high point was Bobby Hillen winning that outside pole at Talladega. Beyond that, that team had really struggled mightily. The 1997 Goodies Headache Powder 500 would be run at the Bristol Motor Speedway on August 23, 1997, on a Saturday night in northeastern Tennessee. And I have to say that I feel this was one of the best races of the 1997 season. Now, if you look at the statistics, it might not bear that out. There were only 12 lead changes, but there was action throughout the race. You had a variety of things happen. You had long green flag runs. You had cautions that happened a bunch together. You had lap cars racing leaders hard. You had leaders getting wrecked. You had cars bouncing off of each other. You had a ton of action behind the leader, even if the leader was pulling away. You had great underdog stories coming up through the field and some heartbreaking moments too as well. ESPN came on the air playing Eldon John's Saturday Night's All Right 
for fighting, as some people say in parentheses. And it was one of those great ESPN intros that they did in the mid to late 90s. Typically about a five-minute intro where they'd have a catchy song and set all the storylines for you. And man, it just, everyone seemed hyped up. The pit reporters seemed hyped up. Bob Jenkins, Ned Jarrett, Benny Parsons, you could just feel the excitement coming through the television. Even as I rewatched this on YouTube, they just painted such a great picture of the excitement of this race. And we talked about in that previous podcast where we talked about the crown jewel races and the biggest races in NASCAR. This Bristol night race had gone from a cult favorite to really being something big. Everyone just expected every Bristol night race, something crazy was going to happen. And the fans had a reason to expect that. 1995, the long rain delay, and then Dale Earnhardt wrecking Terry Labonte across the start-finish line, and Labonte bringing that torn-up car with the front end all torn up and the radiator steaming the victory lane. 96, although Rusty won by a fairly comfortable margin over Jeff Gordon, it was a very action-packed race. The famous moment of the very calm Bobby Labonte, usually calm Bobby Labonte, slamming his helmet into the window of his car after being crashed out of the race in turns three and turns four. We, of course, know what would happen a couple years down the road in Bristol Night Race, the famed 1999 race where Dale Earnhardt was just trying to rattle Terry Labonte's cage, the 2002 race, the bump and run of Jeff Gordon on Rusty Wallace. But this 97 race doesn't get a lot of pub, but it was an excellent race, had a lot of great moments, a lot of excitement on it, and this was just what made Bristol great and what made them keep expanding the stands bigger and bigger and bigger and getting more and more fans because it was a throwback to good old-fashioned Saturday night racing, move or be moved racing. There was basically one groove on the bottom of the racetrack. That was the fastest way to get around. Maybe in the later in the race, you could move up a groove and be successful, but really, if you wanted to win at Bristol, you probably were going to have to do it on the bottom. And even the most patient driver at some point is going to get frustrated with the driver in front of them when they think they're faster and there's going to be contact contact, and there's going to be conflict. And remember, this was only the second time that they had gone with a, you know, 42 or 43 car field at Bristol too, as they had done that to let more cars make the race for short track races in the 1997 season. And that just makes it all the more difficult because those leaders get the green flag and they're running on lap, running in the lap traffic pretty quickly from that perspective too. Kenny Wallace and Jeff Gordon led the field to the green flag. And Kenny Wallace actually got a pretty good jump getting down in the turn one. And Jeff Gordon backed off so that he could get in behind Dale Jarrett, who started third. So Jarrett was second, but probably two to three car lengths behind Kenny Wallace as the cars raced down the backstretch. Unfortunately, Kenny pushed up the racetracks in turns three and four, and Dale Jarrett was able to sweep to the inside of Kenny Wallace and pick up the lead on the first lap of the race. This meant that now Kenny Wallace had started on the pole in two short track races at Martinsville and Bristol. Usually tracks where the inside groove typically wins out and is almost always the preferred groove to be in, and both times failed to lead the first lap of the race. This isn't really a major issue, but for a team that struggled as much as Kenny Wallace in the 1997 season, it had to be a fairly big disappointment that he failed to lead the first lap of the race. Jeff Gordon was able to get inside of Kenny Wallace and pick up the second position and turn one on the second lap, and Kenny Wallace was now pinned to the outside. Dick Trickle and Mark Martin also got around Kenny Wallace moving the third and fourth, and just two laps into the race after starting on the pole, Kenny Wallace had slipped back to the fifth position. Now, this wasn't completely surprising, as Kenny Wallace had reported in the pre-race that he was concerned about his car and the crew had tried to make a lot of adjustments on the car to get it running better. 
Very quickly into the race, Gary Bradbury was smoking in the number 78 car, and he was black flagged and had to go to the pits. It was reported by the pit reporters that he may have a transmission leak. Jeff Gordon began to close in on Dale Jarrett for the lead, and Gordon was able to get to the inside of Dale Jarrett in turn two, and after Dale Jarrett led the first 13 laps, Jeff Gordon picked up the lead. The first caution of the race came out on lap 17, when Ed Berry in the number 95 car and Michael Waltrip in the number 21 got together. Unfortunately for Ed Barrier, he was lapped, but both, most of the cars involved had minimal damage and cards towards the back of the field, back of the field that were struggling, such as, I'm sorry, cars who were in the back of the field chose to pick. The top five before the restart would be Jeff Gordon in the lead, Dale Jarrett second, Dick Trickle third, Mark Martin fourth, and Kenny Wallace in the fifth position. The race would restart on lap 22, and very quickly, Lance Hooper, who was driving the number one Richard Jackson RNL carrier sponsored Pontiac, spun in turn two. But there was no caution. He was able to loop his car back around and get going back in the right direction, but he was lapped. Mark Martin, I'm sorry, Sterling Marlin was fading after the restart. After starting in the sixth position, he had already dropped back to 10th position after he got high on the racetrack. It was reported from the pits that his car was t- tight. Kenny Schrader was having a solid start to the day and was up to the fifth position. On lap 39, Dale Jarrett was able to grab the lead from Jeff Gordon after Jeff Gordon had led 25 consecutive laps. Rusty Wallace was doing a good job working his way up from the middle of the field. He was up to eighth position, 45 laps into the race. Mark Martin was able to get around Dick Trickle and pick up the third position on lap 47. Ernie Irvin spun in turn four, but there was no caution. And as he spun, Dale Jarrett chose to back off. But Jeff Gordon was able to get to the outside of Dale Jarrett on the front stretch and pick up the lead. Now, Jeff Gordon was trying to put a lap on Ernie Irvin, but this was extremely challenging. Irvin was racing Gordon really, really hard and not letting Jeff Gordon get to the inside. Dale Dale Jarrett dropped back a position when Jeff Burden was able to pass him and pick up second position. Then, Jeff Burden was flying up through the field, and he was able to actually pass Jeff Gordon in turn four on lap 62 and pick up the lead. The second cost of the race came out on lap 68 due to debris, it was reported that Cal Petty was going to be forced behind the wall because he was having problems with his rear end gear. He would get back out to run laps and eventually finish in the 36th position. The leaders pitted under the yellow flag and the race would restart on lap 76. Jimmy Spencer had chosen to take two tires and was now in the lead. Jeff Gordon was second. Dale Jarrett was third. Jeff Burden was fourth. And Burden's teammate, Mark Martin, was in the fifth position. When the race restarted, Wally Dollenbach was able to get his lap back, and Jeff Gordon was able to pass Jimmy Spencer for the lead on lap 80. The third caution of the race came out on lap 84 when Joe Nemechek hit the backstretch wall. He had significant damage to the left front and the rear trunk lid of the car. He had spun around and backed into the wall on the backstretch at the wall where it separates the track from the pits. Mike Skinner was able to get a lap back as he passed Jeff Gordon in turn three and raced back to the caution. It would be a brief caution. The race would restart on lap 88. Jimmy Spencer drifted high in turn two, and this allowed Dale Jarrett to move into the second position, and Spencer fell back to third. The fourth caution of the race came out on lap 91, and it involved Daryl Waltrip and Kenny Wallace. Kenny Wallace got forced up into the outside wall and then came back down the racetrack, and there was nowhere for Daryl Waltrip to go, and his right front hit the 81, and he plowed into the inside wall. Daryl Waltrip would not finish the race and would be the first car out being credited with a 42nd place finish. 
It was an extremely disappointing day for Kenny Wallace, too. We had mentioned earlier that he had two short track poles, and in both races, he failed to lead a single lap. The race restarted on lap 97, and a few laps after the restart, we saw Rusty Wallace, Terry Labonte, and Dick Trickle all get around Jeff Bodine, dropping him out of the top 10. With 110 laps complete in the race, Jeff Gordon was the leader, Dale Jarrett was running second, Jeff Burton was in third, great day for Jimmy Spencer in fourth thus far, and Mark Martin was in the fifth position. Rusty Wallace continued his charge up through the field, and he was able to pass Ken Schrader and move up to sixth on the 122nd lap. Mark Martin got around Jeff Burton for third on lap 131. With 150 laps complete in the race, the top 10 was as followed. Jeff Gordon was the leader, Dale Jarrett was second, Mark Martin was in third, Jeff Burton was fourth, Jimmy Spencer was fifth, Rusty Wallace was in sixth, Terry Labonte was seventh, Dick Trickle was in eighth, Jeff Bodine was ninth, and Kenny Schrader was running tenth. Ernie Irvin continued to struggle, and he was eventually lapped on the racetrack, and it was also reported that he was experiencing an engine problem and had to come to the pits. He would eventually go behind the wall, and the crew would attempt to make repairs, but unfortunately they were unsuccessful, and he would be credited with a 42nd place finish. It was also bad luck for Jimmy Spencer, who had been running so well earlier in the race. He unfortunately had to hood up on his car and was having some possible overheating or a radiator problem spencer would eventually complete 468 laps and had a fast car throughout the race but would end up finishing in the 27th position ricky craven was a force to make a green flag pit stop due to a flat right front tire rusty wallace cracked the top five when he moved into fifth position on lap 173 and dale jarrett was closing in on the lead he was only about a car length behind jeff gordon Bill Elliott was lapped in the 17th position, and Steve Grissom was having a great day. Grissom had moved up to the 6th position after he was able to pass Rusty Wallace. On lap 195, Mark Martin got around Dale Jarrett and moved in the 2nd position. Jeff Gordon was attempting to lap Dale Earnhardt right around lap 200. But Earnhardt had found a high groove and was actually making it work well. He was getting a strong run off the corner, and Jeff Gordon wasn't able to complete the pass on Earnhardt. And Earnhardt was actually now beginning to pass some of the other cars that Jeff Gordon was continuing the lap. And as Gordon continued to chase Earnhardt, Earnhardt continued to move up through the field. So as we set the field at lap 200, you had Jeff Gordon as the leader, Mark Martin in second, Dale Jarrett in third, Jeff Burden in fourth, Jeff Bodine was up to fifth, great day for Steve Grissom in sixth, Rusty Wallace was seventh, Terry Labonte was in eighth, Bobby Labonte was ninth, and Dick Trickle was running in the tenth position. Bill Elliott had been lapped, and he decided to make a green flag pit stop on lap 201. This was very common in this time in NASCAR Winston Cup racing. Typically, if you got lapped, you tried to get in the pits, get fresh tires, and take advantage as the leader stayed out. Now, at Bristol, you always had to be worried about the caution because it was pretty much impossible unless you were amongst the leaders to make a pit stop and not lose at least two laps. Dale Earnhardt, as we talked about earlier, continued to pick up spots as Jeff Gordon continued to stalk him to try to put him a lap down. Jeff Bodine had now worked his way up to the fourth position, and Ted Musgrave decided to make a pit stop after being lapped. Mark Martin grabbed the lead from Jeff Gordon on lap 209 after Jeff Gordon had led 129 consecutive laps. Jeremy Mayfield decided to pit, and Jeff Bodine was one of the first of the leaders to pit from the fourth position. Earnhardt continued to stay on the lead lap, and all those drivers who had made green flag pit stops 
had the nightmare happen when the fifth caution of the race came out on lap 217 as Dick Trickle had spun in turn four. He had received slight contact from Derek Cope getting into the corner and then got bumped again and spun all the way around. Dale Jarrett nearly had to stop at the top of the racetrack and may have had slight contact with Rick Mast. After 129 consecutive green flag laps, the race was now under caution. Dick Trickle had got lapped during the spin, and now there were 11 cars on the lead lap. Guys like Ted Musgrave, Jeremy Mayfield, and Bill Elliott, all due to making green flag pit stops, had lost at least two laps, and some of those drivers had already lost a lap anyways. Jeff Bodine, who was running fourth during his green flag pit stop, would end up losing two laps. Yellow flag pit stops would take place, and Jeff Gordon was able to re-grab the lead with a strong pit stop. Dale Jarrett was up to second. Mark Martin lost two spots in the pits and dropped back to third. Jeff Burden was fourth. Rusty Wallace was in fifth. Steve Grissom was sixth. Ken Schrader was in the seventh position. Derek Cope was eighth. Dale Earnhardt was ninth. And Terry Labonte was rounding out the top ten. The race would restart on lap 224, and Jeff Bodine was trying to get his lap back. But Gordon was able to pull away from both Jeff Bodine and Dale Jarrett. The sixth caution of the race would come out on lap 238 due to debris. The race would restart on lap 244 with Jeff Gordon in the lead, Dale Jarrett running second, Mark Martin third, Rusty Wallace fourth, and Jeff Burden in fifth. Gordon was able to get a good jump on the restart and clear the lap traffic. But on the second lap after the restart, Jeff Bodine made slight contact with Jeff Gordon getting into turn one as Bodine was trying to get one of his two laps back. Jeff Gordon slid up the racetrack, and this allowed Dale Jarrett to slip underneath Jeff Gordon and grab the lead as the cars exited turn two. Jeremy Mayfield was also a lap car trying to get a lap back. And as he came off of turn two, it's hard to tell if Jeff Gordon came slightly down on Mayfield or Mayfield came slightly up the racetrack. But Jeremy Mayfield's right front contacted Jeff Gordon's left rear. Gordon spun around off of the banking and halfway down the backstretch slammed the wall that separates the pits from the racetrack. It was hard contact on the passenger side, but even more concerning, the right rear had hit hard against the inside retaining wall. Benny Parsons had guessed that Gordon maybe had damage to the rear end housing, or at the very least was going to have to replace the rear trailing arm. The caution came out on lap 246, and Jeff Bodine was able to get his lap back. This was an absolute disaster for Jeff Gordon. He had one of the strongest cars and had led the most laps as the race neared the halfway point, and now he was wrecked. And coming into the race with a 99-point lead and with Mark Martin running among the leaders, it was very possible that Jeff Gordon was going to lose the points lead. Crashes and racing back to the car, crashes and lap cars had not been very kind to Jeff Gordon in the 1997 season. Remember at Texas, he was trying to back off when the caution came out and Ernie Irvin slowed right in front of him and Gordon had nowhere to go and slammed into Irvin when he was running in the second place at the inaugural race at the Texas Motor Speedway. He'd also been involved in a crash at Dover, where he, as a second-place driver, probably more than likely his fault in this race, ran in the back of Dale Jarrett when Dale Jarrett backed off more than Gordon expected. He'd also been involved in a crash in the Pepsi 400. So this was the fourth race that Gordon had been involved in a crash. It's amazing that he was doing as well in the points, continuing, considering all the tough finishes he'd had, especially Rex. You just don't see 
the points leaders get involved in that many wrecks and still be among the points leaders. So it was a frustrating day for Gordon. The crew now would have to try to repair the car and salvage as many Winston Cup points as they could. The race restarted on lap 252, and we, a few laps later, had another caution. This would be a serious incident where Jeff, I'm sorry, David Green's car would end up on its roof and then ride the front stretch wall and then end up back on its wheels near turn one. Derek Cope had significant damage to the left side of his car as it was flattened. So what had happened, as the cars raced off a of turn four, Michael Waltrip tapped Derek Cope. That turned Derek Cope right up the racetrack and hard into Jeff Green in the number 96 car. Green slammed the outside wall, was riding on two wheels on the track and on the wall, and then, as we said, ended up on his roof, slid all the way down to nearly turn one before the car got back on all four wheels. Bobby Hamilton also got some pretty serious damage in this wreck, as did Brett Bodine as well. Unfortunately, Dale Earnhardt got some pretty serious damage to the front of his car. His crew was wondering if Earnhardt had actually broken the radiator because there was a ton of steam pouring out of the car. Jeff Green, I'm sorry, David Green would ultimately finish in the 40th position and even worse would have to be taken to a local hospital where he's diagnosed with a broken right shoulder blade. The raid would eventually be red flagged. There would be about a 15-minute red flag as they tried to clean up the track. NASCAR decided that they would delay opening the pits until the track was completely clean because they didn't want to open the pits, have drivers run through debris, and then drivers have to come back to pit road. Dale Earnhardt decided to pit early after the red flag was lifted and would actually lose some laps in the pits as his crew attempted to make repairs. The running order now had Dale Jarrett in the lead, Ken Schrader up to second, Mark Martin in third, Rusty Wallace in fourth, and Steve Grissom in the fifth position. Dick Trickle and Jeff Bodine, who were both trying to get a lap back, chose to restart on the outside. This was interesting as you, if you were in front of the leaders on the tail end of the lead lap, remember at this time in NASCAR Winston Cup Racing, there was no wave around rule. You had the choice to stay in front of the leaders and start on the outside or start on the bottom of the racetrack. I think Jeff Bodine and Trickle's thought process is they'd rather start on the outside where they could kind of control the restart than be on the inside where they would be at the mercy of the leader. The race would restart on lap 279, and that's when the pits reported what has to be one of the most bizarre stories in the history of crew chiefs in NASCAR Winston Cup racing. It was reported that Pat Trison, who was the crew chief for Jeff Bodine, had quit due to having an argument with new team manager Tim Brewer. Remember, we had talked about a couple weeks ago that Jeff Bonine had reorganized his team and brought on Jim Matei as a partner. In addition, they had brought on Tim Brewer as a team manager. And in a later interview, Pat Trison would essentially report that Tim Brewer was telling him to stop, talk to Jeff Bodine, stop talking to Jeff Bodine on the radio and to let Tim Brewer make the decisions about what to do with the car. This didn't sit well with Pat Trison, and he just basically walked off the toolbox and said that he was done and that he was quitting as crew chief if he wasn't going to be able to talk to his driver. Well, interestingly enough, Dale Jarrett ended up spinning out Jeff Bodine in turn four as he attempted to lap him on lap 279. So this brought out the ninth caution of the race. Dick Trickle was able to get his lap back, but Mike Skinner suffered pretty significant damage to the right front. Terry Lubone and Dick Trickle were the only cars that chose to pit under 
this caution flag on the front stretch. And Jeff Gordon made repairs and got back on the racetrack. We still had almost 200 laps to go when the race restarted on lap 303. Dale Jarrett was the leader. Ken Schrader was still running in the second position. Mark Martin was third. Jeff Burton was fourth. Steve Grissom was fifth. Rusty Wallace was sixth. Bobby Labonte was seventh. Terry Labonte was eighth. And Dick Trickle was ninth. Those were the nine cars on the lead lap. Mark Martin and Jeff Burton were both able to get around Ken Schrader on the restart, and Martin moved into the second, and Jeff Burton into the third positions. With 175 laps to go, Dale Jarrett had a 1.2-second lead on Mark Martin. Steve Grissom was able to pass Ken Schrader and move up into the fourth position. 25 laps later, Dale Jarrett continued to lead. Mark Martin was second. Jeff Burton was in third. Steve Grissom was fourth. Ken Schrader was running fifth. Rusty Wallace was sixth. Terry Labonte was seventh. Dick Trickle was eighth. Bobby Labonte was in ninth. And Jeff Bodine was one lap down in the tenth position. Mark Martin quickly began to close in on Dale Jarrett, and he had actually shrunk the interval to just a, over a half second. With 125 laps to go, Mark Martin had halved that lead again down to a quarter of a second. And the top four were running within two and a half seconds. Ten laps later, though, Jeff Burton was closing in on Mark Martin. And the top four were now all nose to tail. Bobby Hamilton spun off the front bumper of Dale Jarrett, and this gave Mark Martin the opportunity to grab the lead on lap 396. Jeff Byrne was able to move into second, and Dale Jarrett falled back to the third position. It looked like when Dale Jarrett had made contact with Bobby Hamilton that he had actually had been forced to touch the apron in turn three, but he was able to save the race car. Steve Grissom was able to grab the third position from Dale Jarrett two laps later. As the long green flag run continued with 100 laps to go, Mark Martin had the lead, Jeff Burton was second, Steve Grissom was third, Dale Jarrett had faded to fourth, Ken Schrader was fifth, Tara Labonte was sixth, Rusty Wallace was seventh, Dick Trickle was eighth, Bobby Labonte was the final car in the lead lap in ninth, and Jeff Bodine was running in the tenth position. This race has a YouTube version that's called the Raw Satellite Feed. What that means is, is that when the race goes to commercial, you actually get to hear the off-the-air comments that the announcers are making. And this is pretty cool because this race has that feed. Not all races do, but sometimes YouTube posters have the raw feed and post it. So it was reported that as Dale Jarrett faded back, that they were really, really concerned that he might be having an issue with his tires and that he was going to pit in about the next eight or so laps. Well, Dale Jarrett caught a huge break when the 10th caution of the race came out on lap 409 as the number 78 car had spun out of Gary Bradbury. He was up against the turn four wall with significant damage to the race car, and Bradbury would not finish the race and be credited with a 37th place finish. The 106-lap green flag run had been stopped, and there would be yellow flag pit stops. Mark Martin maintained his lead. Dale Jarrett moved up to the second position after good pit work. Jeff Byrne was in third. Rusty Wallace was fourth. Steve Grissom was fifth. Terry Labonte was sixth. Dick Trickle was in the seventh position. Bobby Labonte was eighth. Ken Schrader was the last car in the lead lap in ninth. And Jeff Bodine ran in the tenth position. The race restarted on lap 417, and Rusty Wallace quickly grabbed the third position from Jeff Burton. I don't want to say Rusty Wallace was quiet all race, but after starting back, and towards the middle of the field, he had worked his way into kind of the sixth, seventh position, fifth position, kind of run, ran in that area 
much of the race, but didn't really seem like a serious contender for victory. But all of a sudden, Rusty Wallace's car really seemed like it was coming on. And you can never count Rusty Wallace on a short track race, especially at Bristol. Jeff Bodine was able to get his get back on the lead lap after one lap was complete, but Mark Martin came down the racetrack and slammed the door shut on Dale Jarrett so Jarrett would not be able to grab the lead. The rest of the field, with the exception of Jeff Bodine, was two or more laps down. There was a big crash bringing out the 11th caution of the race on lap 425, and this allowed Jeff Bodine to get his lap back. The cars with the most serious damage was the number 31 car of Mike Skinner and the number 46 car of Wally Dahlenbach. In fact, both cars were kind of stuck on the banking in turn two, although Wally Dollenbeck was eventually able to pull away. Mike Skinner would re- crash damage would result in a did not finish in the 34th position. It looked like Mike Skinner had got turned about halfway down the backstretch and then slammed into the wall. Most of the leaders chose not to pit, but Ken Schrader and Jeff Bodine both toward the back of the lead lap had nothing to lose, especially Jeff Bodine, who had just got back on the lead lap. Bobby Labonte was in the pits, and it was reported that the nose was dragging the race car, and they were trying to put rounds of bite in the race car. The top five was as followed. Mark Martin had the lead. Dale Jarrett was second. Rusty Wallace was third. Jeff Byrne was fourth, and Steve Grissom was in the fifth position. The race would restart on lap 436. And a couple laps after the restart, Dale Jarrett was just a half-car length back of Mark Martin. If you're wondering what happened to Dale Earnhardt after that crash damage and that big wreck involving David Green and many other drivers, he was now three laps down in the 15th position. With 50 laps to go, Ken Trader was able to pass Dick Trickle on the outside and move into the seventh position. Jeff Burton passed Rusty Wallace for third position with 46 laps to go. And then all of a sudden, it was reported that Rusty Wallace thought he had a flat tire. He pitted under the green flag and the crew put right side tires on. And just a couple laps later, Rusty Wallace had to come back to pit road and need left side tires. This would result in Rusty losing two laps. And this late in the race, there was no way that he could make up those laps. And he would ultimately finish in the 12th position. There were now nine cars in the lead lap. And Mark Martin was maintaining about a half a second lead on Dale Jarrett. The race went to commercial, but due to the magic of YouTube, we had the raw feed. So we could continue to see the action. And Dale Jarrett was able to close quickly on Mark Martin and get to the inside of him in turns one and two. As they worked down the backstretch, Dale Jarrett grabbed the lead in turn three. But then as he tried to avoid a lap car, he ran Mark Martin way up the racetrack and was able to grab the lead on lap 470. But then the caution, the 12th of the race, quickly came out due to oil on the racetrack. Terry Labonte and Dick Trickle both decided to pit for tires. And Steve Grissom was pitting on the backstretch figured that the best chance at victory would be for him to take on tires too as well. The race would restart on lap 479 with 22 laps to go. Let's set the field for you. Dale Jarrett was the leader. Mark Martin was second. Jeff Burden was third. Ken Trader was fourth. Jeff Bodine was in the fifth position. Bobby Labonte was sixth. And then Grissom, Trickle, and Terry Labonte running seventh, eighth, and ninth. The only other cars in the lead lap had all been drivers who had gotten fresh tires. When the race restarted, Dale Jarrett didn't want to mess with Rusty Wallace, who was two laps down, and he let Rusty beat him in the turn one. Steve Grissom was in the fifth position, and Dick Trickle was able to pass Bobby Labonte for sixth, as Steve Grissom also got around Bobby Labonte. Dale Jarrett had a comfortable lead with 12 laps to go. Grissom then was able to pass Ken Schrader and move up to fourth. 
Trickle actually made contact with Schrader to move Schrader off the bottom of the racetrack and grab the fifth position. Then Trickle set up Steve Grissom for a great pass. He ran a little bit higher and then came down the banking and was able to get inside of Steve Grissom off of turn four and grab the fourth position with seven laps to go. Dale Jarrett was pulling away from Mark Martin, and he was leading by a second and a half with just five laps left to go in the race. Dick Trickle pulled the same move he had pulled off on Steve Grissom a few laps later when he was able to again go way up the hill and get inside of Jeff Burton and move into the third position with two laps to go. The white flag came out, and Dale Jarrett still looked like he had a comfortable lead. But as he came off turns one and turn two, he was behind Michael Waltrip, who was way up the racetrack. But Jarrett was being extremely cautious and decided to not attempt to pass Michael Waltrip. Waltrip continued to stay high, and Mark Martin continued to close hard on Dale Jarrett. As the cars came off a of turn four, Martin was just half a car length back. Dale Jarrett would be able to get back to the start-finish line first, winning the race by a car length over Mark Martin. It was a big moment for Dale Jarrett as he picked up his first career NASCAR Winston Cup short track victory and the 12th career victory for Dale Jarrett. It was also his fourth victory of the season. He had won in Atlanta and Darlington in the spring, won the July race at Pocono, and now had won the August race at Bristol. Dale Jarrett ended up leading the most laps, 210 laps on his way to victory. This was the seventh time in the 1997 season that Dale Jarrett had led the most laps. We already said that it was his fourth win of the 1997 season. It was a big moment for Mark Martin, too, as well. He had led 84 laps, finished in the second position, and it was the first time that Mark Martin had led the points since the 1990 season when he had finished second in points to Dale Earnhardt. What a great day it was for Dick Trickle. This was probably the feel-good story of the race. He had finished in the third position, and this had tied a career-best finish, which he had done on four different occasions, most recently in the 1990 season when he finished third at Dover from the pole, driving for Cale Yarbrough. It was also Dick Trickle's first top five finish since the 1993 race at Atlanta when he was driving for Larry Hedrick. Jeff Burton came home fourth, leading seven laps, and a great day for Steve Grissom. He finished fifth. This was his second top five of the 97 season. His only better finish was one spot better when he finished fourth at Loud. Ken Schrader came home sixth, and he had picked up his best tied his best finish of the 1997 season. He was sixth at Dover. Terry Labonte came home seventh. Terry's brother, Bobby Labonte, was eighth. Jeff Bodine was able to rally from two laps down to finish in the ninth position. And despite the drama between Pat Trison and Tim Brewer, he had a great day. And this gave Jeff Bodine three pretty decent finishes in a row. He had been second at the butt at the Glen at Watkins Glen, had a top 15 finish at Michigan, and now had a top 10 at Bristol. Sterling Marlin ended up two laps down, but that was good enough to finish in the 10th position. Interestingly enough, there was no driver in this race that finished one lap down. Good day for John Andretti. He came home 11th for Cale Yarbrough. Rusty Wallace's late race pit stop, and then them not changing the left side tires on the first pit stop, ended up costing him two laps, and he finished 12th. Ricky Craven was three laps down, finishing in the 13th position. Dale Earnhardt finished 14th, and Ted Musgrave rounded out the top 15. Bill Elliott finished 16th. The top finishing rookie was Jeff Green in the 21st position. Jeff Gordon's wreck halfway through the race resulted in a 35th pace finish. Kenny Wallace, the pole sitter, finished 39th, a very disappointing result. 
and Kenny Wallace had still not led a lap in the 1997 Winston Cup season, despite starting on the poles at both Martinsville and at Bristol. The race took three hours and 19 minutes and 51 seconds to complete. The 12 cautions for 97 laps slowed the average speed to just over 80 miles an hour. Dale Jarrett's margin of victory over Mark Martin was just over a tenth of a second, and there were 12 lead changes among five drivers. In an instant, the unpredictability of Bristol had resulted in a major change in the NASCAR Winston Cup point standings. One lap, Jeff Gordon was dominating the race and getting a good start on a restart. And just one lap later, he was hard into the backstretch wall due to contact with Jeremy Mayfield, who was laps down. As a result, with Mark Martin finishing in the second position and Jeff Gordon being credited with a 35th place finish, Mark Martin had gained 112 points on Jeff Gordon, had become the points leader for the first time since the 1990 season, and now led second place Jeff Gordon by 13 points. It was an excellent day for Dale Jarrett. He gained 122 points on Jeff Gordon when he led the most laps and won the race, and he was now just 171 points out of the NASCAR Winston Cup Championship. Jarrett needed a shot in the arm because he was hovering around being nearly 300 points out of the points lead before the Bristol race. Terry Labonte was fourth in points, 240 points back, and Jeff Burton, who had finished fourth, was now 290 points back, fifth in points. Dale Earnhardt had had a good early day, but then suffered damage in that big crash involving David Green, and Earnhardt was sitting 6th in points, 405 points back. Bobby Labonte was 7th in points, and he was 510 points behind the leader, and he had a good cushion over the drivers that were 8th, 9th, and 10th in points. Ted Musgrave was 8th in points, 673 points back. Bill Elliott was 9th in points, just 6 points behind 8th place Ted Musgrave, and Recky Rudd rounded out the top 10 in points. Jeremy Mayfield was 11th in points. He was just 24 points out of the top 10. And Johnny Benson was 12th in points, just 65 points out of the top 10. Rusty Wallace was 13th in points. And Daryl Waltrip's misfortune and 42nd place finish at Bristol had dropped him to 17th in points. So when we give some final thoughts about the Bristol night race in 1997, it was a great day for Dale Jarrett. Not only had he finally gotten not winning a NASCAR Winston Cup short track race, getting that monkey off of his back. He had also gained major points and he needed to have a big shot in the arm and really cut into some of that points lead of Jeff Gordon. If he was going to have any shot at the championship, it was still a long shot at this point because he had a lot of points to make up on both Mark Martin and Jeff Gordon. But with 10 races left and Jarrett usually being pretty good at winning races late in the season, you still had to consider Jarrett to be a serious contender for the NASCAR Winston cup championship. The other great stories had to be the underdog stories of the race. Dick Trickle had tied his best finish with an amazing third-place finish. He had put tires on before the last restart and was cutting and carving his way up through the field. It's too bad there wasn't about 10 more green flag laps. He may have had a shot at the victory. It was also a great day for Jeff Green, who had come home fifth, and that was his second-best finish of the 1997 NASCAR Winston Cup season. I've talked about on previous podcasts, but this is something that I really loved about mid-1990s NASCAR Winston Cup racing. You could see some of those mid-tier teams have the ability on the right day with the right setup and the right luck to have a really, really great run. And it wasn't out of the question that either of those drivers with the right set of circumstances may have had the opportunity to go to victory lane. So when we look back on this 1997 Bristol night race, it really was an epic race. There were so many unpredictable moments, 
close quartered racing throughout, and this was the reason why they had to continue to expand the attendance at Bristol. Bristol was honestly at its best when it was a one-groove racetrack. With the reconfiguration of Bristol, we probably have what drivers enjoy as a track where they have better chances to make passes because there's two grooves and you can work the upper or bottom groove. But Bristol was really at its best when you had to run around the bottom and move guys off of the bottom. It was the ultimate of move or be move racing, and it provided tons of exciting races and continued to raise the profile of this race. So with Bristol in the rearview mirror, it was time for the NASCAR Winston Cup Series to turn its attention to the Southern 500 to be run on Labor Day weekend. And Jeff Gordon would try to bounce back from his bad finish at Bristol, win his third straight Southern 500, and try to collect the Winston Million. For the Stock Car Racing Time Machine Podcast, I'm your host, Tim Naiman. Thanks for listening.